The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's very nice to be here. Um, I have a great affection for this center and for Gil, who has been a great uh, support and help to me. Um, and uh, haven't been here in a while. I used to come down pretty regularly, so um, I know there's uh, somewhat of a churn in the Dharma Center, so maybe a, a lot of you don't know me, I don't know. Um, it's kind of an, uh, been an emotional 24 hours. I don't know if it has been for you guys. I I was getting ready to go into San Francisco yesterday morning and had on... Uh, the television and found myself sobbing and thinking uh, maybe I just want to stay here and watch this all day instead of uh, going into the city with friends and uh, and participating in the in the march but I did go and uh, so then I just came home later and watched more and sobbed some more so I've been doing a lot of that uh, That's not what I'm going to talk about exactly, but uh, I, I actually have a newer book. Uh, I, I am, I'm almost uh, I'm sort of a writer who happens to be a Dharma teacher, so I, I write books because I love to write. Uh, so, and and as Martha said, a lot of my work has been around around recovery and t- connecting Buddhism and twelve steps. But uh, the book that I came out with recently is is for more of a general Buddhist audience. It's called Living Kindness. This is a copy. We don't sell books here, uh, but we can tell people about them. Uh, And I did actually send down some books last month. Uh, I don't know if there's any left. Uh, They were for free distribution. and this title kind of is meant to uh, be code to Buddhists. Uh, when you hear living kindness, I presume that you think, oh, loving kindness. Oh, but this must be about something about trying to like live loving kindness. Oh, I want to buy that book. <laughs> so I'm just trying to... As I said, I have a, a daughter in college, so... Uh... <laughs> I do try to be generous with my teachings, but uh, I am a lay person. Um, so, but I want to tell you a little bit about the book, and then I'm going to talk uh, just ab- about some of the themes. But I'm not going to, you know, sort of tell you about, you know, try to read you the book or whatever. But the but the idea for me with this book, and sometimes, as, and I'm sure there's some writers here, and you know that sometimes you set out to write one thing and it comes out to be something different. You know, uh, I very much kind of trust the process. And, and uh, it was actually meant to be more of a political book. The subtitle is Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. But it became more of a sutta book, uh, um, which is why I, I actually I asked Gil to write an endorsement for it uh, because uh, he's such a scholar of, of uh, the early Buddhist teachings, and I was drawing on those teachings, and I, w- I wanted to get some support from people who are respected in that that way. And, 
And so the book delves into several suttas. It's not expansive in that regard. Just just picked a few suttas that have been really important to me. And suttas, if you're not familiar with the term, is the the uh, Pali word for which is the language of the early teachings. It's the Pali word for a discourse or a teaching. So, um, and these suttas can be very, they're somewhat technical and they can be very kind of hard to read. And it, it took me some years of study before I, they start to, started to really resonate for me. At first they seemed very dry. And, but they've really become alive for me uh, and, um, and really important for me. And, and part of what I wanted to do with this book was m- make some of the suttas more inviting for people. Um, not sort of get into them on an academic or scholarly level, but really as a, on a felt level, on an experiential level, on the level of insight and, and all that we come to the teachings for. Because um, you know, my early experience, uh, as I you know, have been practicing since 1980, what, everything I learned about the suttas was filtered through my teachers, and I didn't start to read suttas until I'd been practicing for about 15 years. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, published the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. That was 1995. So uh, what I particularly wanted to bring out in these suttas was the ways that the Buddha talks about loving kindness that are not sort of the typical ways we think of it. Um, so one of the really critical then, then suttas to look at is called the simile of the saw. And this is uh, about non-ill will. And it, you know, this is a typical sort of awkward phrase that we run into in the suttas. And that... But that's actually very important because loving kindness is this sort of, it can be a kind of uh, image for us or idea of something really sweet and warm and and open. And, uh, and non-ill will, in some ways, I think is more important <laughs> uh, because it's harder. <laughs> to not have ill will, I think, than it is. You can, you know, if you sit sit here and meditate for a while, you know, you kind of get a lot of those lovely feelings. They kind of open up, even if you're not doing metta practice, loving kindness practice per se. There's an opening and a softening that naturally happens. But when we go out in the world, it's hard to keep that with us. And a lot of times we're confronted more with how do I not, get frustrated or angry or resentful or disturbed by what's going on in the world or just upset by this person driving in front of me or my boss or my kids or my partner, you know. Uh, And so, um, you know, in this sutta, the Buddha is very insistent that we must not dwell in resentment and anger. And to the point where he says in the climactic scene, and it's a very dramatic sutta, the climactic phrase where he says, even if one is being, one's limbs are being sawed off with a two-handled saw, it's very graphic, you know, you see the person one by one. If a thought of ill will arises, you are not practicing my teachings. 
wow. You know, and so you might think, okay, I'm maybe not going to be a Buddhist after, <laughs> after all. Uh, it was nice, but thanks for sharing. But uh, I hear there's a Sufi dancing class down the street, and they like to sing and dance, and that's more my style, you know. And whether the Buddha really expects that to happen or not, um, I don't know. Uh, I did talk to some some people. Actually, we corresponded somewhat with Bhikkhu Bodhi as well as Ajahn Pasano, one of our leading Western uh, Buddhist monks. And, and their their emphasis was not so much that you're going to be put to the te- this test, but rather that showing how strongly the Buddha felt about anger and its uh, destructiveness. One of the things that's interesting that the Buddha says about anger is that when you're angry with your enemy, you're giving your enemy what they want. You're, you're causing yourself suffering. And, and so he's kind of finding different strategies for, for inspiring you to let go of your anger. And that's, that's a pretty good one. I think. Um, so, um, I just put this over here. I've, what I wanted to focus on, particularly though, was kind of uh, these different elements of. Uh, loving kindness, what I wanted to focus on today, uh, these different elements and kind of manifestations of loving kindness um, and kind of kind of take it apart a little bit and reflect on it. Um, uh, because again, I think we get somewhat of a limited idea of what loving kindness or metta, M-E-T-T-A is the word in Pali, what it means one of those problem, one of the reasons for that is that in Pali, this language of the early scriptures, it's a simple five-letter word that we translate into this awkward compound, loving kindness. Now, why is it that in the English language, love isn't a good enough translation of that? Why do we have to add kindness? What kind of love doesn't have kindness in it? Well, if you watch movies and listen to pop music, you have some idea. <laughs> it's the kind of love that uh, we, when we say making love, which has become uh, actually to mean having sex, apparently, which is interesting. Uh, I think back in the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers days, it was a little milder. I'm not sure. I never asked my parents about that. I I should have asked them what they thought that meant. In any case, clearly in our language, love can have a lot of meanings that are not necessarily uh, what the Buddha meant by metta. So, you know, different scholars have translated it as friendliness and benevolence, but I I don't find that there really is an English word that seems to capture the fullness of the word metta, which is very telling in a way, you know, and and it 
it's one of the problems of trying to study what the Buddha taught, that he was talking about things that we don't have words for. You know, what does that mean? You know, just the word dukkha that we translate as suffering. Well, again, not, not a sufficient translation. And, you know, the, the good news, though, of course, is that Dharma practice is about something experiential. And we learn what metta is and what dukkha is. We, we come to understand these words through our own practice, through our own experience. And we listen to teachings, we practice, we try to correlate. And eventually we, come, we have a translation that's in our heart. It's not something verbal. It's, something, it's an understanding, which is what we mean when we say insight. This center is called an insight meditation center. So what we mean by that isn't some idea, but an understanding, a felt understanding, an experienced understanding of truth. So I would say, I think that the way metta or loving kindness is marketed, if you will, and it is marketed in the Buddhist world, uh, is marketed as come and feel loving open your heart love everybody you'll leave very you'll leave the retreat happy which is nice everybody wants that but there's a problem with feelings you may have heard about it they talk about it a lot at buddhist centers feelings are impermanent we can't hold on to that feeling that openness, that spaciousness. You go on a retreat, and I'm sure many of you have been on retreats and or just doing a practice, and you feel open, you feel you come out and you carry that with you for a while, but after a while it fades. So feelings are not a, a, a sufficient uh, reason to practice metta. It's not, it's not what ultimately metta is uh, the, the feeling of metta is vital and experiencing it, at least having a taste of it, is a really important part of our development of our understanding and our practice of living kindness is to, is to know what that feels like, to feel that connection. Because that opens us into something else. And I would say that what it opens us into is, is insight when we see how the closed heart feels and we feel the open heart, it shifts how we, our relationship to the world. I, you know, I go back to my f- very first retreat was in the fall Thanksgiving of uh, 1980. And on the last day of that retreat, we did this very powerful practice of looking at someone else. We'd been silent for five or six days. And and we were just told to turn and face someone. And one person closed their eyes and the other person just looked at the other person's face. And it was kind of seeing, well, for me it was to a great extent, seeing the suffering or seeing the, the, the life that this person had lived in, in their, etched into their face. I don't know that it was suffering per se, but just kind of seeing uh, just what's revealed on our, in a face. 
And then, of course, I closed my eyes. And then we were asked to just look at each other's eyes silently. And I didn't know this person. Uh, and just looking at each other, it was a very powerful opening experience. And, and uh, I wound up uh, being a lifelong friend with this person who I did not know. But further, and, and the reason I bring this up is that you know, I went on that retreat thinking, oh, I'm going to have this great meditation experience. After the retreat, I'm going to be so uh, happy and peaceful. And actually, I cried every day <laughs> for the, a week after that retreat. And I was 30 years old, and I hadn't cried probably since my maybe early teen years or maybe, maybe when I was 12. I don't remember, but it had been a long time. And I realized that I'd been shut down, that my heart had closed, that my heart, and, that, and that, that had happened at some point, probably in my teenage years. I don't know if that happened for you guys, but I think one of the things that I find so moving and why I was crying yesterday is because watching these teenagers who are so open and who have had this experience uh, reminds me of my own vulnerability as a teenager and the crises that I went through. But this, this experience of opening is also an experience of connection. Because what we are opening to is our connection. It's opening to our own humanity and our own heart. But in that opening is a realization that all beings have hearts. <laughs> all human beings, at least, I, I I don't know how much we can talk about the feelings of other beings, but all human beings have hearts that are either open or closed or somewhere on the spectrum of those things. But that no matter how open or closed they are, that they have this potential and that they experience suffering and that they experience love. So that is the insight that we can take with us when the feeling fades. Whether there's a feeling there or not, we know once we have touched this and had this experience, we have this realization that everyone has a heart, that everyone has these feelings. It shifts the way we see the world and the way that we want to be in the world. We want to care about others. We do care about others. So both loving kindness and compassion arise out of this. So this, the sutta that I talk about when I talk about self-love and the struggle for that that so many of us, at least in our culture, seem to have, is a sutta in which these two characters who appear uh, Quite often in the suttas, Queen Malika and King Pasanadi. Uh, I'm a big fan of Malika. She's she's a star in my mind. Uh, Queen, uh, King Pasanadi asks Queen Malika, "Is there anyone that you hold more dear than yourself?" And Queen Malika says, "No, there's no one that I hold more dear than myself." Kind of a striking statement, actually. And 
the fact that the king is asking her that uh, doesn't say anything about this in the suttas, but I'm very suspicious. Like, it seems like he's fishing, you know? <laughs> you know? That, that doesn't come up, but... And so she asks him the same, and he responds the same way. No, there's no one that I hold more dear than myself. So then they go to the Buddha and tell them tell them about this conversation. And he says, that is excellent that you feel that way and that you see that, that you hold yourselves dear. And then he says, anyone who holds themselves dear will never harm another because they know that others hold themselves dear too. And it, it's kind of a long way around to get to the golden rule, essentially. Uh, turns out there's some wisdom in other traditions besides Buddhism. But this is what I'm talking about, about this heart opening. This is why opening the heart is not just a personal experience, why it re- it's very revealing in this way. So I sh- I'm going to keep an eye on the clock because... Uh, Okay, I'm fine now, but <laughs> this, because uh, uh, there's a lot of places I can go with this, but one of the things that I want to go into a bit, and I'm not going to take too much time on this though, is what it means to hold yourself dear. And this is one of the problems that people seem to run into in Western Buddhist centers that I go to, when faced with this instruction to practice loving kindness for yourself. It doesn't say, like yourself. <laughs> it says, love yourself. So we have to then define love. So we have, the, we have a problem defining loving kindness, and there's also a problem defining love, I would say. So I think that what we tend, tend to, what tends to come up when someone says, practice love for yourself is that you start to rate yourself you know it's like how many stars do I get on Yelp or something you know Uh, you know and and we try to review our lives and figure out am I worthy of love have I earned it you know do I have have enough good karma points to get love and that's not what the Buddha is talking about it seems pretty clear that he's not talking about earning love, but that there is a way in which we all deserve love. So the way I've come to understand this, the idea of loving yourself is not about thinking about, it's not even really about thinking about yourself. It's about care for yourself. If we think of love as care, and I'm going to talk about a sutta that points to this too. But if we think of love as care, then in very simple ways, we can see that we care for ourselves. You know, you, if you are tired, you rest. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're hungry, you eat. You know, if you are longing for connection or spiritual you know, sustenance, you come to IMC So all of you today are loving yourselves right now. How about that? 
<laughs> okay? So it, rather than seeing whether have I earned it or not, we see that when I take care of myself, I'm actually expressing love. It's not a, not a thought process. It's much more organic than that. And I would say as a recovering addict, alcoholic, that addiction is a great, you know, active addiction is a great example of not loving yourself because you're not caring for yourself. You're, you're not probably resting much. You're not eating well. You're not resting well. You know, you're ingesting things that are harming your body. Uh, so it's not so much how we think about ourselves, but how we, how we take care of ourselves. And in meditation practice, caring for yourself doesn't mean going, oh, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. I really deserve it. It means that we're gentle with ourselves. When those difficult feelings come up or difficult thoughts come up, we don't attack them. You know, oh, God, I hate this. This sucks. I've got to get rid of this. We know if, you, you know if you've been practicing for two days, you know that when you do that, what happens is it just gets worse. And you find that, oh, there's a way in which I have to, well, I call it let go. But, you know, we have to kind of soften and go, oh, there's this feeling, oh, there's this thought, hmm, that's kind of difficult, that's kind of painful. Well, let me just be you know, at ease with it. Let me be gentle with it. So this is what we learn to do. Uh, again, it's not a thought like, I should do this because I love myself. It's just a natural, organic response to, oh, look at all this agitation. Let me just be gentle and soft and kind with it. You know, let me not fight with myself. So again, this is how we practice love for ourselves. So I hope I've solved the problem of metta for yourself and not for you guys. Because it doesn't need to be a problem. We make it a problem. So uh, I said I was going to talk about a, a sutta reference that suggests this idea of care. So in the metta sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness, there's a key phrase that's the closest thing we get to the Buddha defining loving kindness. He says, and you, many of you I'm sure are familiar with this, these lines. I actually adapted it into a song, which is one of the songs on my CD, which is called Laughing Buddha, which is available on something. <laughs> anywhere, actually, it's on Spotify now, I understand. So anyway, sorry. Um, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So it seems that the Buddha is telling us how we should at least practice or express loving kindness in the same way that a mother protects her child. It took me a long time, and this is one of the reasons why we go back to the texts over and over, to zero in on the word protect. I had, uh, for a long time, I thought, oh, what this means is you're supposed to be like huggy, kissy, smiley with people because, you know, mothers love their children. And, and of course, the image of mother love is one of very gentle, affectionate care. But that's not what the Buddha is describing. He's saying, even as a mother protects with her life, <laughs> her child. So, wow, protecting us rather than just hugging us, you know, and praising us, 
Oh, you're so cute, you know. Oh, you're so... And... My ears are apparently not built for this. Let me try that again. And, and it is interesting for those who are parents here that we don't always feel a lot of sweetness towards our children. Sometimes we get very frustrated with them, uh, very angry with them. But in a moment of anger for your child, if someone came up and said, so you really hate your kid, don't you? You'd be like, are you kidding me? I love my child. Well, why are you so, be so angry with them? Well, have you got kids? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is life, you know? This is relationships. We ha- same thing happens with our partners, with, you know, with, our, with our own parents. You know, with, it's, it's not... Love isn't always, you know, that kind of sweet image of affection that we sort of portray... Sometimes we get angry with ourselves in the same way. And maybe, hopefully, we still love ourselves. We still, you know, uh, you know we still have lunch, even though we're ticked off at ourselves, you know. <laughs> well, I'm hungry. I mean, I'm really mad at myself. I'm not feeding you. <laughs> kind of weird. So, I, I want to go through a couple of different uh, way, uh, more aspects or clarify a few more things about how I've come to understand loving kindness. So, there's a, there's a feeling of loving kindness, which is, you know, a part of it. Uh, then there's insights that come through practicing. But um, what I've been talking about now, care, really falls more under what we could say is behavior. Um, and in the Buddhist path, this is the, the element of the path called sila. And typically we call sila morality or ethics. But sila, to me, has a much broader meaning that really is about how we live. Um, and And I actually think it has a psychological dimension too, but... I haven't been able to convince other Buddhists of that, so I'll put that aside. The, the psychological purification, it's, that's usually linked up with, um, with samadhi, the second part of the path, the meditative part. But in any case, um, loving kindness is also a way of being, of acting, of living. Uh, one of the things that Venerable Analio says, who's one of the great modern Buddhist scholars, is that following the precepts is how we practice the Dharma off the cushion. And that, in fact, following the precepts is an act of compassion. You know, that by not killing, by not stealing, by not harming sexually, by not lying or harming with speech, by not using intoxicants, because those are actions of non-harming. They are non-harming is one of the ways the Buddha, one of the terms the Buddha uses for compassion. When he says right intention, there's three elements of right intention: renunciation, non-ill will, and non-harming. So non-ill will is loving kindness. Non-harming is compassion. So just following the precepts 
is an act of compassion. Again, what I like about that is that I don't have to do some big thing. It's like, oh yeah, I'm already trying to follow the precepts. I mean, I slip up here and there. But generally, I tr- that's, those are guiding principles for me. Oh, so I'm already acting with compassion. Well, that's nice to know, you know, just to take a, get a little bit of extra, uh, you know, feeling of positive feeling about who I am without having to prove it, you know, or do, uh, qualify for it. So there's the feeling of loving kindness. There's the insight. There's the behavior. Now, uh, this, uh, this one other element, it really falls under the insight, but it's kind of the expression of the insight, if you will. That's what I call the attitude of loving kindness. So the attitude of loving kindness is using loving kindness and compassion as a lens through which we view the world. So when something happens... Uh, well, here's an example of this. I, I uh, used to work for a magazine distributor in Venice Beach back in the early 80s. And his accountant w- uh, tended to complain a lot and kind of was kind of irritable. And you would go through the office and he'd be complaining about something. And he was kind of an annoying person. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that, but there's a few in the world. And I went to my boss, Ed, and I said, you know, I really find Ian is just so annoying. It's like you go in there and he's just complaining and moaning. And and Ed said, well, when he does that, what I think is he must talk to himself the same way he talks to me. So then I feel compassion for him because I realize, oh, that's just what's in his head and it just comes out of his mouth and it's also in his head. That was, to me, a really brilliant insight. I mean, I had never thought of it before. And obviously it stayed with me for a long time. I remember it uh, still. And it's that lens of saying, oh, rather than looking at him through my, you know, aversive lens i'm going to say is there another way to understand this so we you know do this you can do this on the highway i'm sure you know people have thought of this you know someone cuts you off and you know your immediate reaction is what's what's wrong with them and you're angry with them or you know you feel kind of scared but then sometimes you might think oh well maybe they're rushing to the hospital or there's some emergency or even the fact that they are so agitated that they're driving in a dangerous way that threatens them, their life and yours, shows that they must be in some form of suffering. So can I take the shift from my personal view of how this affects me right now to this more Dharma view that, 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 I, you know, that I see it through that lens? So that, to me, is the attitude of loving kindness. Again, not something we have to feel all the time if we just remember. And like, like mindfulness, the hard part is to remember a lot of times because we get caught up in our own reactivity. But when we commit to and try to live in accordance with the Dharma, that's, that's what we're trying to do all the time is remember what's the Dharma view of this experience. So feeling, 
insight, behavior, attitude. And then the one other element, and this sort of is a whole other piece of meta practice, is the samadhi element, the concentration element. And this is actually what uh, many of the particularly Burmese teachers, their, their, their main purpose in teaching metta is, isn't so much heart opening as it is mind focusing. It's taught as a concentration practice. Even if you look at the, the Vasudhimaga, which is uh, the commentary, uh, it's a classic uh, Theravadan Buddhist commentary the chapter on loving kindness really focuses much more on concentration. It, ha- it, it, it addresses ill will, but there's a sense that it's really ultimately about just focusing the mind. And, uh, and just to, to talk about how that works, when you do metta practice, it's a very consuming practice. The, there are a variety of elements that are brought together there are often phrases that are used and a visualization of the people that you are thinking of. There is work with the breath and the heart. So there's both a physical connection as well as an emotional connection. And so all of these things are brought together in the mind. So as you sit with metta and you're repeating phrases and you're trying to see people and feel your body, it requires that you really get absorbed into the practice and, it, and it's a very absorbing practice and in addition because it tends to arouse pleasant feelings pleasant feelings also support concentration it's a little known secret that actually happiness helps you to meditate and so uh, you might come here to meditate to get happy it also helps if you came in happy then the Anyway, it's, it kind of works both ways because meditation can make you happy. I don't, don't like to make promises because uh, I've struggled with depression and it doesn't fix that. Uh, it can help. Um, so this is another element of, of metta. So even, uh, and again, uh, uh, just to take this away from the feeling aspect, even if you're not feeling it, you can get benefit from it just as a meditative practice, you know, just to uh, work with those, those elements, uh, even if you're just using it for concentration. So it, it's really kind of, uh, in some ways, pretty remarkable practice that it, it touches on so many different elements of the path. And fundamentally, what I've been talking about we could say is this this three these three elements of the classical Buddhist path: sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is our lifestyle, our precept, so our behavior. Samadhi is the development of concentration and meditation, which includes then the, uh, that's where I kind of put the feeling part of meditation is in samadhi. We sometimes it's usually translated as concentration. Another poor term the 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 uh, term that I like best for for samadhi is calm abiding and a calm abiding is a is a feeling right you can even in the language of it you can tell that that's a feeling so 
the feeling of metta, I think, falls under the samadhi element. And then the third element of the path is panya, the wisdom or insight. So all of these elements are actually contained in metta practice and in in living kindness and trying to bring all these together. Um, They're not separate from mindfulness. They're part of mindfulness. They depend upon mindfulness uh, because, as I said, if you can't be aware, if you can't remember to be loving, then you're just, it, it doesn't really arise. And the, in, the insights, you know, when we are practicing metta, what happens is that there are different reactions in the mind to the different uh, aspects, and that actually opens up. We need to be aware of that as we're practicing metta, or we can easily get distracted. So mindfulness is an integral part of it. So, I, you know, I, I just uh, find this to be a subject. It's obviously, you know, when you work, work on a book for a while, it starts to take over your mind in a certain way. And uh, it's, it's interesting. There are many doorways into Dharma, you know, and... Uh, and really, any one of them can kind of open up in this way. And this is uh, really how I, how I try to practice and how I try to study Dharma is, is looking at each of these as a doorway. So I hope this is helpful for your understanding of loving kindness and living kindness. Thank you. <laughs>